You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Pepe, this is Seth. Hey, Seth. How, how are, are you? I'm okay. Hey, listen, how are things in Naples? Well, as usual, you know, there is some sun and uh, a lot of noise. <laughs> hey, listen, do you have a moment to answer a couple of questions about your sleep habits? Oh, yes. All right. Here's the deal. Big Picture Science is doing a show on sleep. How many hours of sleep are you getting these days, or should I say these nights? Well, uh, Seth, we have known each other for a very long time. So, I mean, it's many years ago, I used to sleep three hours per day. Now I'm getting old, so I need more. <laughs> I mean, it's five hours. So, for 20 years, you lived on three hours of sleep a night, and now it's five hours sleep a night. I mean, is is that sufficient? Can you be fully functional on three or five hours of sleep a night? I think so. You know, I'm not so sure. I mean, it's a sort of biased question. I mean, I'm the less up person to judge whether I'm functional or not. I mean, I do my best. Uh, Does this run in your family, by the way? Have you had relatives that also... Oh, yes. So so this is something you inherited, or or did you learn it? From my father. From my father used to sleep much less than that also. So on the average, he slept all his life about four hours. Wow. And what happens, Pepe, if you try to sleep for eight hours? I mean, does it work, or can you just not do it? I just cannot do it. it I mean, even when I'm incredibly tired, even after crossing the ocean from the United States to Europe, which I think is one of the most devastating experiences I can have, even after that, I cannot sleep more than five hours. Well, okay, Pepe, it's good to talk with you. I know it's nine hours later in Italy than it is here in California. Consequently, it's your bedtime. So I'm going <laughs> to... Yes, I need my eight hours so sleep. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good to talk to you, Pepe. Thanks a lot. Ciao, Seth. Thanks for calling. My friend Beppe Longo, who, by the way, is a physicist, is the only person I know who can regularly get by on that little sleep. But I have to ask, if Beppe can do it, why can't you or I? I mean... Why do some of us, like me, need eight hours of sawing wood and not a minute less? Jeez, what's up with you? I've only had seven hours and 58 minutes of sleep, okay? I'm a little cranky. We spend a lot of time asleep, about a third of our lives. Yes, you can look at it this way. I mean, during the course of their lives, some people will be unconscious for nearly as long a time as Wolfgang Mozart was alive. Mozart changed music forever, so what could you do with an extra three decades or so? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley, and we're looking at sleep, something that we're all interested in and could use more of. It's Z's Please on Big Picture Science. And you know, when you get right down to it, sleeping is weird. Well, that's right, because we do it every day, every night. But we may not really notice that it's weird, but imagine if alien beings landed on this planet. I mean, what would they think of our diurnal behavior? What to make of this species, Zork? Every spin of their planet, they drop to the ground and don't move. Then they get up slowly and carry on as though nothing happened, except they're cranky. Okay, it's bonkers. We sleep seven or eight hours a night. 
but why? Emmanuel Mignot is professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, and he's the director of the Stanford Center for Sleep Sciences and Medicine. He's devoted his career to studying narcolepsy, and from his understanding of the brain's inability to regulate sleep and wake cycles, well, we have at least some insight into why we sleep at all. Emmanuel, when I lie in bed before I fall asleep, I am aware that I'm still awake. I'm even aware at the moments when I'm getting drowsy, but I'm not aware of the moment when I fall asleep. Do we know what happens at that moment that we fall asleep? Yes. In fact, what has been the most helpful to understand this specific moment has been to study brain activity during this transition. And what we see is that there is a specific area of the brain called the thalamus, which is very important to process sensory input. So that's kind of a relay where what you feel, what you hear, what you smell is coming through to then go to your consciousness. It suddenly decreases its activity very abruptly. And that's exactly the time when you fall asleep. So... And so you're not conscious. Suddenly what happens is you just disconnect from your environment and boom, you're in sleep. That's the first thing that happens. And... Is sleepfulness and wakefulness, is it a binary situation where you're either awake or you're asleep? Can you experience something along that spectrum? So it is both. So sleep and wake is a binary function. I think sleep onset itself, this loss of consciousness, is really critical to define sleep. We define sleep as a reversible state of unconsciousness. But at the same time, there are different depths of sleep and sleep can be associated with some brain activity of different kind. For example, we have a stage of sleep where we're completely unconscious and our brain activity is very slow and sluggish. That's called slow wave sleep. That's the kind of sleep uh, you experience in the middle of your night and when wakes you up, you don't really know where you are and you're kind of, ah, what's going on? And then there's another stage of sleep, REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep, where your brain is very active and you are dreaming. And if one wakes you up, you would remember your dreams. But at the same time, you're completely paralyzed and you have these rapid eye movements. Uh, so there are different types of sleep. But in all these sleep stages, truly, you are disconnected from the environment. You know, if, a, um, if an alien being came to this planet and observed the inhabitants of it and saw that for eight hours a day, a large number of them just lay down and zonked out, it might seem very strange. And when we think of it that way, we do spend an awful lot of our life on this planet sleeping. Do we know why? It is a very strange behavior. And there have been many, many people who have tried to figure out why we sleep. And the real question is not why we sleep, but rather why sleep has been selected by natural evolution. Why over time, you know, we have developed this behavior. There are several main theories. One of the most popular is energy saving. The idea is very simple. Usually we can live well either during the day or the night. You know, we have to adopt a certain lifestyle, I would say, and which can be nocturnal or diurnal. And that depends of where, when our food is available. I mean, if we are, you know, carnivores, maybe we may be during the daytime and we hunt for prey, and other animals would prefer to live at night, but it's quite difficult to have both ways. Uh, so the other time uh, of the cycle, when it's difficult to find food for you because it's a wrong ecology, you might as well try to reduce your metabolism and rest and try not to burn as many calories. And this would have been selected very easily because when food is not readily available, you know, you would survive longer than the others by sleeping. Although animals are quite vulnerable when they sleep. You're right. So there are uh, counter-arguments to this. Uh, one of them is indeed that animals are vulnerable when they sleep. But in fact, herbivores, of course, fear predators, you know, have a very light sleep. Whereas carnivores, including us, we have very strong uh, sleep. So clearly, you know, there are some secondary adaptations that occur on sleep, depending if you are vulnerable or not. But still, 
the other problem with this energy expenditure idea is that during REM sleep, when we dream, we even expend more energy. It's very odd, and our brain is even more active than when we're awake. So the energy saving issue is a little odd. It doesn't fit completely. Now, we've been talking about being asleep and being awake. And to some degree, it is, it's a binary situation. You're either awake or you're asleep. But there are two mechanisms in the brain that control for that. There's one that controls for wakefulness and one that controls for sleep. So it's not as though you just uh, flip a switch in the same area of the brain. Can you explain that? So a sleeping brain is actually quite complicated. So what happened is you have a whole network of neurons and brain cells that change their activity dramatically in these different sleep stages. And all this is coordinated by relatively few systems that either helps the brain to stay awake or force the brain to stay asleep. The main systems that helps you to stay awake are called catecholamines, like serotonin, uh, norepinephrine or dopamine. These are which, neurotransmitters? Yes, they are neurotransmitters. And a lot of these, these uh, chemicals that exist in the brains are modulated by drugs like stimulants, like Ritalin, amphetamines, uh, antidepressants. And then you have another series of chemicals that rather depress the brain activity and helps you to go to sleep. And those rather promote GABA generally. GABA is an inhibitory transmitter that is very important to fall asleep. And um, sleeping pills usually would promote the effect of GABA and then they make you kind of sleep in an unconscious way. And, you know, the activity of the brain is usually in equilibrium between these different systems. And then when the equilibrium switch to the sleep active one, then you go to sleep. One of the areas that you work on, in fact, is your specialty is narcolepsy. Can you give just a, a definition of what narcolepsy is from where you sit? Yes, narcolepsy is a very uh, odd uh, disorder because that's one of the few disorders where brain activity is completely uh, abnormal so that sleep and wake are intermingled and uh, patients have a brain defect that makes them experience very dramatic sleepiness where they're tired all the time. But in addition, they go very quickly into rapid eye movement sleep. So they would suddenly dream very vividly when they fall asleep or sometimes they would wake up and they would be paralyzed because you know during REM sleep normally you are paralyzed but patients would just come out of REM sleep but still be paralyzed but awake so it can be very scary or even sometimes they may when their emotions like laughing or joking we don't really know why it seems to activate the paralysis of REM sleep and suddenly patients become paralyzed or fall down. So they'll be laughing about something or they'll be making a joke and then they just fall asleep. It triggers something. Yes. It's not exactly that they fall asleep. It's rather that they are paralyzed. They have the paralysis of REM sleep. You describe these two mechanisms in the, in the brain, and I know we're generalizing here, but yes. one that um, controls wakefulness and one that controls um, sleepiness or, or sleep. In the case of narcolepsy, are they are they both experiencing disorders or is it it's a disorder of one mechanism rather than the other? So the cause of narcolepsy is actually very simple. It's just one of these wake-promoting systems that disrupted. It was discovered in 1999. We had actually a dog colony of animals with narcolepsy. and um, Dogs? Yeah. It's very odd. Narcolepsy has been first reported in the 19th century uh, in humans, but uh, no one really knew the cause of it. And then in the 50s, some people discovered that dogs could have the same problem. So... If you have a dog, I'm sure you know that <laughs> the dog would like to nap very often. And you you do have a dog because you have a picture of yourself, a big picture of yourself with your dog here in this office. Yes, you're right. I have a narcoleptic dog as well at home. You actually. do? Yes. His name is Bear. He's way more famous than me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he has a Facebook with many more friends. <laughs> but anyway, Bear uh, has narcolepsy, and the way it manifests is he's tired all the time, he naps more often than other dogs. But in addition, the most striking is when he gets excited, he suddenly uh, becomes paralyzed, like I explained for the patients when they are laughing or joking. So he loses muscle strength and he can't move for a few seconds. 
a big picture question, which is how our sleep has changed. And I think there is growing concern that we're not getting enough sleep. We live in a society that runs 24 hours a day. What have you seen that this overall pattern on our lack of sleep, what the trend has been, what has the effect been on people? So for sure, we know that sleep has had several big blows. The first one was light, when uh, artificial light was invented. I mean, you can imagine that before you had nothing to do, candles were expensive, might as well sleep. So certainly during the winter, people would sleep a lot. And it's relatively recent. I mean, it's only a few hundred years. So we probably have not adapted to having light in the middle of the night. And that's probably changing a lot, you know, our brain activity uh, in ways that we don't really understand. The second thing is social pressure. I mean, now we work more and more, and people think that sleep is dispensable. And uh, it's very clear that even the last uh, 40 years, I think sleep has decreased as a mean about 30 minutes in the US. So it's quite impressive. It is very difficult to prove causality, to really prove that it's a lack of sleep that really caused a lot of the medical problems we have today, such as obesity and and cardiovascular disease, but there are very strong correlation, and it may be a cofactor. Emmanuel Mignot, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Emmanuel Mignot is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, and he's the director of the Stanford Center for Sleep Sciences and Medicine at Stanford University. Next, why bother getting enough shut-eye when a simple pharmaceutical will keep you awake as long as you want? And if you want to use that time by reading a good book, well, don't burn the midnight oil. Just turn on your bioluminescent tree. Oh, that's technology that's uh, going to take root. It's Z's, please, on Big Picture Science. <laughs> I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. There was a time one or two centuries ago when almost everybody rose and slept according to whether the sun was in the sky. Another day. Let's get those cows out of the barn. Wake up and smell the clover, cows. Let's see, a few more nails and I've got, whoops, the sunset. And there's Ma's supper bell. Time for some soup and then I'll hit the hay, which in the case of my mattress is technically straw. Then the widespread availability of artificial light changed our natural sleeping habits. First, gaslight. Come to bed, Charles. Hold on, wife dearest. Let me read just one more chapter of this fascinating book, The Migration Habits of the Northumberland Swallow, as observed by Sir Reginald Hornsby, FRS. Then came the electric lamp. Charlie, turn off the light. It's time for bed. I'm reading the newspaper, dear. Alfred Dreyfus may be convicted of treason. Remarkable. Things changed again with the bioluminescent tree. Yo, Chuck, turn off your bioluminescent tree so we can sleep. In a sec, I'm reading the manual for my personal robot. Number two, we'll obey the orders given to it by human beings, except in the cases... Our futures just got brighter and wakefulness more attractive with a new twist on natural light. We can certainly see the forest now for the bioluminescent trees. Molecular biologists from the Glowing Plant Project are tinkering with the genes in plants to give us trees that both grow and glow. Kyle Taylor is one of those scientists. And Kyle, before we get to how or when, I have to ask you, why? Why engineer glowing trees? 
So this isn't really a new idea. Um, you can look back in 1986, I think, the first glowing plant was produced. And I think it's something that's kind of captivated people's imagination. Something that kind of glows is something you can see. Um, and a glowing plant is kind of a cool idea. So it's kind of a demonstration of capability project in yeah, a way. I mean, if you could make trees that could pick birds out of the air, you'd do that. I... <laughs> uh, maybe not that. But glowing is a little, uh, I guess, easier to imagine. So. All right. Well, let's see how you do this. I mean, it's the application of, do I have this right, synthetic biology. What creatures are you mixing and matching here, and, and how are you doing it? So essentially, we're taking the genes that make bacteria from the ocean glow and taking those genes out, the glowing genes out of that, and putting it into the plant and kind of rewriting them in a way that uh, the plant can read it a little bit easier. One analogy would be, I remember back in high school having a really hard time going back and reading like a Chaucer because um, it was written in a bit of an older English dialect. You could still kind of read it, but it took me a long time to do it. Um, that's kind of what's happening if you just take the genes directly out of the bacteria and paste it into the plant. It's still DNA. I mean, the plant can read it, but it's a little different dialect, so it's a little bit slower for the plant to read. But well, let me see if I understand this now. Mm-hmm. Rather than looking at this plant, here's the plant DNA. I got it you know, laid out in front of me uh, one way or another. <laughs> and, and I say, all right, now I need to put this sequence of base pairs or whatever it is, I need to put them here because that will cause the plant to produce whatever it is that's necessary for it to glow. <laughs> now, I could either take that bit of DNA from some other critter, mm-hmm. some microbe, and, and try and paste it in there physically, mm-hmm. or I could rewrite the uh, the sequence. So which are you doing? Essentially, we're going to be rewriting the sequence. Okay. So it still produces the same protein. It's like the protein in the end is the same. All right. Now, this protein, uh, it's called luciferase? Um, yeah. So typically, for most bioluminescent systems, there's two components. There's the luciferin and the luciferase. Um, and luciferase is the protein um, and luciferin is the small molecule that the protein acts upon to make light. Is, is luciferin sort of fuel for luciferase or is it? But basically, yeah. You can think of it that way. Okay. So, and, and well, so, well, just because you re-engineer the plant to produce luciferase, mm-hmm. uh, you also have to re-engineer it to produce this luciferin, right? Otherwise, right. it's not going to do anything. Or do you just feed it into the plant somehow? So the original plant that I was talking about in 1986 um, was made where they put the luciferase, the protein, in, and then they fed the luciferin to the plant. And what we want to try to do is put both in. So this will be a self, self-perpetuating, or self-perpetuating, it's, it's a system that the plant will do all that's necessary. You don't have to pay any attention to it. It'll do it on its own. Um, yeah, you'd still want to water it, but... Yeah, yeah, well, I, whatever it's a plant needs <laughs> right, might be, right, but, right. but it's glow needs. Yeah. You don't have to give it miracle glow, right? <laughs> right, okay. right. So, it, it, okay. Now, let's say that this works. Mm-hmm. I assume it's going to work, right? It's going to work. <laughs> well, what would you do with the plants? Are you trying to, I mean, would you consider planting an entire forest of these glowing trees, or is this for a, you know, a nightstand plant? Right. Um, at this point, one of the, the big motivations behind doing the project was to really kind of educate and inspire people and say, you know, look, here's where we're kind of at with synthetic biology. We can start to now do fun and interesting things. And here, why don't you start thinking about what cool stuff you could do? That being said, the plants themselves are probably going to be at this point um, more like a novelty, like a glow light type of thing on the side of your bed or something like that. So. Right. And you're not doing this in a major commercial lab, right? I mean, this is a do-it-yourself project. Right, right. That's uh, the other kind of interesting component to this. I'm trying to do it in more of a, a DIY bio um, or community lab space, which is kind of fun and interesting. Well, biohacking has become sort of uh, the rage, has it not? I mean, yes. a lot of people are doing this. Apparently, you can get the equipment you need, you know, off of Craigslist or eBay or something and uh, set it up in your garage and you're in the uh, biohacking biz. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, do, do you ever get people who say, well, wait a minute, that might be dangerous? Having, in my mind, a larger population of people who are biohacking, I think is the one of the better defenses against this bioterrorism side of things. Because once you get more people thinking about the problem, I think a lot of interesting, innovative solutions can come out of that. Okay, so you don't seem terribly concerned about the dark side. Well, maybe that's because you're making glowing plants. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think it's something to be concerned about and and take seriously. But I think the fear of that shouldn't stop us from asking these questions, talking about these things, and trying to push the limits of science and see where we can go and what we can do with this. Night of the glowing pine. (laughs) All right, Kyle, how brightly would these things glow? I mean, is this kind of night light kind of glow, or is it something that uh, I could read a book by? So we're shooting for, like, the -the glow-in-the-dark stars, that you kind of put up in your room. I must confess I had those in my room growing up. Um, we're shooting for something about like that. And then if it can get brighter, great. 
it occurs to me that there is an energy argument here, right? Because, you know, the amount of sunlight falling on your average outdoor plant during the day might be, I don't know, after the clouds in the atmosphere and all that, on average, it might be a couple of hundred watts per square meter per square yard, right? Something Mm -hmm. like that. And my understanding was that photosynthesis was only maybe a few percent efficient. I don't know what it is. So it's only a couple of watts. I mean, you'd have to have it sitting out in the sun all day long to have it work like a nightlight for a couple of hours at night. And that's assuming that the plant doesn't do anything else, like grow. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, isn't there going to be a limit? You're never going to get these things to be very bright. Um, right. The truth is, I don't think biology is the point where you can kind of figure out what it's going to do um, in terms of how brightly it's going to glow. So I must confess, I come from more of an experimental biologist background, and I kind of take the point of view of trying it, seeing what happens in terms of how bright it glows. Well, finally, Kyle, I understand that you're considering making a glowing rose. That's a project, right? Yes, uh, that's one of the stretch goals. Okay. I mean, that might have tremendous appeal. I can imagine people might want to buy that. You say it's a novelty. Yes, it's a novelty, but it's certainly an appealing novelty, like neon tetras in your (laughs) aquarium, right? Right. So... What do you foresee here 10 years down the road? I mean, I can imagine that there'll be a, quite a market for plants that uh, you can find uh, without the fridge light. <laughs> um, right, potentially. Um, and that's kind of the exciting aspect of it as well, is finding ways of using synthetic biology to have things that the end consumers can play around with experience um, and kind of hold in their hand. Kyle Taylor, thank you so much for talking uh, with us. Thank you. Kyle Taylor is a molecular biologist with the Glowing Plant Project. Well, if glowing foliage is not enough to put you on full alert... Maybe you want to go the pharmaceutical route. We already take stimulants in different forms, prescription pills, cans of Red Bull, or morning visits to our local drug supplier. Can I have your order? Yeah, could you throw a triple shot of espresso into a cup of coffee and give me a macchiato on the side? But maybe we can be more efficient than downing a turbo dose of caffeine. Oh, and a chocolate Danish. And sugar. Enter DARPA. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which leads the way in innovative and occasionally weird and sometimes unsettling technology, following an unofficial mantra of looking where the world will be in 30 years and delivering it in five. A team of its scientists has long been investigating how we might squeeze restorative sleep into fewer hours. The primary motivation is to keep soldiers alert longer. UCLA neuroscientist Jerry Siegel worked with the agency to develop a stimulant that employs a key brain hormone that regulates wakefulness. It's called orexin A. And it's not just for the military. It may help civilians who have sleep disorders. But we may be limited in how far we can go in combating sleeplessness with pharmaceuticals, he says, as demonstrated by what soldiers use now. The newest drug in keeping awake category is ProVigil, and and so that can be used, but amphetamine is more powerful, and that's also used. And obviously there's a trade-off between the, the side effects and the necessity to stay awake. If you're in danger and you, you need to stay awake, one of these drugs is probably a good choice. I see. So so this actually happens. I mean, this isn't just something from science fiction stories. These guys really are popping some sort of pill to uh, to keep them awake on a long flight. Well, the trouble is it can't be done indefinitely. So, And, and the military is interested in this as well. If you have to stay up for one night, uh, you can drink coffee or you can take amphetamine or you can take ProVigil. Uh, the military for some time has been interested in the idea of, of sort of continuous performance by soldiers who are in a battle Uh, And they would like a soldier to be able to be alert and active for a couple of weeks. Now, this is nearly impossible without consequences and without the drugs becoming progressively less effective and the the side effects increasing. Well, speaking of things that uh, might work, I mean, you've developed a new drug together with uh, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Uh, This is apparently a nasal spray that can fight the need for sleep. And the active uh, ingredient is called orexin A. What is orexin A? How does it work? Well, this this is not something that we we particularly developed, but we were involved in the discovery that uh, narcolepsy is caused by a loss of the neurons containing this peptide. And so we tested replacing it in in narcoleptic dogs uh, that we have. And we also did a study in which it was given to monkeys, which were normal, but 
had been sleep deprived and uh, it restored their performance. So it does seem that this drug, when it's missing, will cause people to be sleepy. And when you supplement it, will uh, increase waking and reverse the effects of sleepiness. So if I shot this spray up my nose, presumably, uh, you know, at three in the morning, I would still be awake. Would I feel alert? Would I be cognitively as good as I am during the day, uh, as poor as that might be? Well, to the extent that it's been looked at, I would say yes, uh, in, in much the same way that caffeine and amphetamine will keep you awake. Well, it certainly sounds appealing. I mean, you know, drinking coffee, gosh, you, you know, you, <laughs> I mean, that, that's a bit of a ritual and one we're so used to, we don't consider it particularly onerous. But if I could just take a squeeze bottle out of my pocket and, and, and squeeze it into my nose and get the same effect, uh, do you know, are there any side effects? I mean, it seems to me that anything that works on the brain, and this is a peptide that works on the brain, I mean, the brain is a complicated thing. It's like deleting a line of code from a software program. It's sure to have effects that are probably unanticipated. Well, that's exactly right. So narcoleptics are losing a relatively small group of neurons in one part of the brain, and they have this specific syndrome. These neurons connect with a lot of different parts of the brain, but they're being controlled by the whole brain, as you say. And when you take it nasally or intravenously, it's not going just to the normal sites and certainly not in the normal doses. And this is true with all psychoactive drugs. Jerry, I have a friend in Italy, Giuseppe Longo. He claims to only need a few hours of sleep per night. That's been true all his life. How does he do that? Why don't we just study his brain and, and develop uh, something by learning what it is that's going on with him? Well, this is part of the essential mystery of uh, what we don't know about sleep. It's true that there are people who can get by on five and six hours of sleep, uh, and there are other people who need eight or nine hours of sleep or even 10 hours of sleep. And there, there seems to be no kind of cognitive correlate of this. In other words, the people who naturally don't need a lot of sleep function quite well. There's no correlation with IQ or memory problems or any, any of that sort of stuff. And then, uh, so, so within humans, there's a huge range. Even if you control for age and uh, other medical conditions, there's a huge range of natural sleep times. Uh, a lot of the work I've been doing looks at different species, and there the range is even larger. So an elephant gets by with typically uh, three or four hours of sleep for years, and they have huge brains and great cognitive ability. Uh, so it doesn't seem like the amount of sleep you need is fixed. Finally, Jerry, what's, what's your prediction for the future? I, I don't mean next year, but maybe 20, 50 years down the road. Could technology sort of minimize our need for sleep? Uh, what, what would the world look like if people only had to sleep for an hour or two every night and still be A-OK at the office in the morning? <laughs> well, your guess is as good as mine about what the world would look like. I, I do think it's possible because, as you've said, there are people who don't sleep very much and they do just fine. And there are animals that sleep even less and they do uh, splendidly. Of course, the difference between humans and other animals is millions of years of evolution and many subtle uh, changes in the brain. But, but given the range of sleep within individuals, it certainly seems that if we could understand how that comes about, we might be able to simulate it. But, but the underlying structure that's responsible for that is probably genetically determined. So this gets into sort of far out manipulations of the genome or uh, trying to compensate for hardwired changes in, in the brain. So I don't think we'll be seeing any of that real soon. All right. I, I, I won't sell my mattress stock right away. Jerry Siegel, thank you so very much for talking with us. Pleasure talking with you. Jerry Siegel is a neuroscientist and professor of psychiatry at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. Okay. You know that feeling. You just had a great dream. But now it's dissipated like fog. No matter, just let a dream scanner remember for you the latest research coming up. It's Z's, please, from Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. 
With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you are now getting very sleepy. Very sleepy. As sleep sets in... Your brain waves get slower. You descend through stage one of sleep, relaxation. (sighs) And into stage two, light sleep. (sighs) Get that guy a cork. And from that to stage three, slow brain wave, deep sleep. After this restorative phase, the brain has a spurt of rapid eye movement, REM sleep. If you're waking while in this phase you're likely to report dreaming. Which interests this guy? So my name is Jack Gallant. I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of California, Berkeley. And my job in life is to try to build mathematical models of the brain that accurately predict how the brain responds under any arbitrary conditions. Such as dreaming. Oh my God, I had the weirdest dream. There was this enormous giraffe, only it was really my fifth grade teacher. And there was someone, I think a guy dressed as a cake. Maybe it was Brian Cranston. And then a bunch of things happened, and then there was ah, something else, and, ah, dang, I can't remember it. Well, one day you'll be able to throw out that nightstand dream journal, because brain scans will record everything for you. And steps have actually been taken in that direction. There are scientists in Japan that have shown early success in decoding dreams with brain scans. So what they do is they monitor the brains of sleeping subjects to see what sort of patterns arise when they dream. And then they decode new dreams based on that earlier data. Okay, this gets a little far out. So let's bring back Jack Gallant, the Japanese dream decoder, and we'll return to that later, builds on his work. Jack Gallant's team has been deciphering how the brain responds to visual images and is trying to identify the patterns created in our noggin when we watch movies. So what his team does is they show people videos while they're in an fMRI machine. Jack calls it a magnet. And they record which parts of the brain are lighting up as they see different images in the videos, a face, a dog, whatever. Okay, but here's the truly amazing part. After having done a lot of that uh, mapping, Gallant's team tries to just start from the brain activity of someone who's, who's watching a video without knowing what's in the video, and then generate a new video, a mashup they make from a bunch of YouTube clips, of what they think their subject was watching. Jack Gallant explains how it works. So on the left of the video here, we have a movie that we showed people while they were in the magnet. And on the right, we have a reconstruction uh, from their brain activity. And this reconstruction is essentially another movie. Um, It's kind of blurry and fuzzy, and it's our best guess of what the movie the person saw actually looked like. The idea here is you show them videos, and then you measure points in the brain, and you find systematic relationships between the videos and the brain activity that you measured. And so some parts of the brain, say, that are involved in auditory processing won't be responding at all, and there will be no relationship between those parts of the brain and the videos. Parts of the brain that are responding to little local features in the videos, like a nose or an eye, those will respond only when a nose or an eye is on the screen. Parts of the brain that encode whole objects, like there's a man or a dog, those will be responding when those things occur on the screen. So we find these systematic relationships between things in the video and the brain activity. And then, as we're showing here... I was going to say, so it sounds like you can group them. So you can have a group for structures that might have houses and buildings and then maybe something for animals and something for men. I mean, you have categories that you start identifying. Yeah, the categories are actually determined by the brain itself. There are 50 or 60 different visual areas. And the reason there are 50 or 60 areas is because each visual area is doing a different job. It's representing a different kind of information about the world. Really, they're representing different levels of detail about the world. Some some brain areas are representing little fine structural details in scenes. And some brain areas are just representing sort of the gross uh, content of the scene. And they don't really know anything about exactly where anything is or where, what it looks like. Okay. And so we build a model for each of those brain areas. All right. Then what do you do next? 
because what I'm seeing on the left are different images. There's a boy, there's an airplane, there's a parrot. Um, and then on the right is sort of a, a, a blurry image of what I see on the left. Where is that image coming from on the right? Where do you get that video? Right. So, uh, so in the decoding part of the experiment, which is the second phase of the experiment, we put people in the magnet, we show them movies, and we measure their brain activity. And then we immediately throw away the movies and pretend that we have no idea what they are. So now we have the problem of inferring what the person saw or reconstructing what they saw from their brain activity. And to do that, we actually uh, go out to YouTube and we downloaded 5,000 hours of video from YouTube completely at random. And we downloaded 5,000 hours because that's about a year's worth of visual experience. That's about the number of hours you're awake in one year. So essentially on our computer here, we have a, a year's worth of visual experience if all you did during that year was watch YouTube. And now we're going to try to use this YouTube video library to reconstruct what you saw. And to do that, we take each of the YouTube clips and we pass it through the model and we generate a predicted brain activity that we would have expected to have occurred if you had actually seen that YouTube video. And then we find the YouTube clip that generates brain activity that is predicted that is most similar to the brain activity we actually observed and then we just call that our reconstruction. The models we build in the initial phase of the experiment are pretty general. So we can put somebody in a magnet and just show them an hour or two of video. And that gives us a mathematical model that tells us about the relationship between any possible video they could have seen and brain activity. So then when they go in the second stage of the experiment, we show them completely new videos that they never saw before. We're still able to infer what kind of structure would have created that the brain activity. Okay, and then you substitute that clip from YouTube. So, for example, if you showed them what we're seeing here on the left, uh, the image of an elephant or the image of an um, airplane, you are able to pick up that signal and then substitute so that you can play it back a similar image from a, a YouTube clip of an airplane or of an elephant. Right, except remember we don't know that it's going to be an airplane or an elephant. So what we really do is we take all 5,000 hours of YouTube video and we put them through the model. And each one generates some expected brain activity. It's essentially our prediction of what that thing would have done to the brain if you had actually seen it. And one of those will be the most similar to the thing that actually occurred in the brain. And we just sort of arbitrarily call that the reconstruction. So then we show you that on the right side of the screen here as the reconstruction. Okay, so the reconstruction isn't exactly what you had seen, but it's the closest approximation. Exactly. The reconstructions are limited both by how good our brain models are and how big our video library is. Is, is there a place that people can go to watch this video? Yeah, this, these videos are on our YouTube channel. I think our YouTube channel is Gallant Lab UCB. That's Gallant, uh, G-A-L-L-A-N-T. Right, or you can go to our website, which is gallantlab.org, and you can uh, both look at these videos online, or you can look at our interactive brain viewer online. There's some, uh, some other programs on there that people can play with. You know, watching him demonstrate the playback was amazing, and it was also kind of unsettling. It's worth checking out that video. Yeah, you see what he's trying to do is, is, I don't know, kind of compile a dictionary of your brain waves, uh, depending on what you're looking at, at least the visual part of your brain waves, okay? So, you know, you, you see, I don't know, you see a car, and this part of your brain lights up, whatever, and then you see a, a person, and that part of your brain lights up and so forth. So once he has this dictionary, now he can just look at the brain waves and, and figure out what it was you thought you were seeing. And what's interesting here is that the same visual systems work when we dream as when we're watching TV or just seeing the world. So now Jack Gallant explains how the Japanese team, led by Yukiyasu Kamatani at the Advanced Telecommunications Research Institute International in Kyoto, has begun building a decoder for the secret world of dreams. The decoder works by um, building a model of how people's brains respond to movies, and then using that model while they're dreaming to try to interpret the brain activity that they can measure while people are dreaming. And then they use uh, the brain activity filtered through the model to try to reconstruct what the person saw. Okay. And so when you're looking at brain activity, you're actually looking at where the blood is rushing to in the brain with an fMRI machine, right? right? And so you're really looking at how the neurons are responding. 
indirectly. Okay. So the way they're measuring brain activity uh, is with a functional MRI machine. And fMRI is a, a technology that's been around about 20 years now. And it measures changes in blood flow and blood volume and blood oxygen use that occur when neurons do what they do, which is fire action potentials. Changes in blood flow are much slower than neural activity. They take a few seconds to occur. They're not directly coupled to neurons. There's this sort of 10-step kind of Rube Goldberg machine that links changes in neural activity to changes in blood flow. But it does provide you an indirect measurement. So what what did Kamatani's team, what were they able to do with their dream decoder? So remember, up to this point, no one has been able to decode dreams. People have been able to decode static images that they've shown to people. So you can put someone in a magnet and show them a photograph and reconstruct the photograph. My lab and other labs have managed to decode movies. So you can put somebody in an MRI machine and show them movies and then put them back in the MRI machine and show them different movies and reconstruct those movies. So the Kamatani group integrated information from several labs to essentially build a movie decoder. They put people in the magnet, built uh, a decoder that enabled them to reconstruct movies. Then they put them back in the magnet and waited for them to go to sleep. Now, you might think that would take a long time, but actually, it's really boring to be in the magnet, and people go to sleep really fast. So as people are dropping into sleep, they go through a special dream period that's not true dreaming, but it's called hypnagogic dreaming. And this only lasts a few minutes, and then you drop into deep sleep. So they would monitor people's brain activity, and when they entered hypnagogic dreaming, they would wake the subjects up, and they would ask them what they were dreaming about. So then they had some sort of notion of what the person was actually dreaming about, and that would enable them to check to see if their reconstructions of the dreams were correct. Can you give me an example of what someone might have been dreaming and then what the team did with that information? Sure. So someone uh, might fall into hypnagogic dreaming, and then they would be waken up, and they would tell you in Japanese, oh, I was dreaming uh, that I was at school and I was writing on the blackboard and then you woke me up. So now Kamatani's team would try to reconstruct the dream directly and see if what they got was somebody writing on the chalkboard. It sounds really futuristic. So what do you mean when you say then they reconstruct the dream? When you think about reconstructing either a movie that somebody actually sees or a dream, the question really is what are you reconstructing? Because you can reconstruct different aspects of the experience. So if you're trying to reconstruct a movie that somebody saw, you could try to reconstruct all the little edges and where they occur and their motion across the scene. And then if you do that correctly, you would actually end up with a video of the movie that they saw that was reconstructed from brain activity. But you could also make a more abstract reconstruction, where instead of reconstructing the actual physical structure of the stimulus, you just reconstruct the content of the scene. For example, I'm sitting in a booth now looking at you, and there's a microphone, and you're wearing some headphones. And instead of reconstructing a picture of you, I could read your maybe read your brain activity and then just say, oh, there was a microphone and a woman and some headphones. Hang on. You would read my brain activity because you would know what was happening in my brain um whenever women appeared and whenever microphones appeared and whenever headphones appeared. So are you saying that you could look, or you and and, um, Kamatani's team could look at a brain scan that had nothing but just data about my brain activity and say, oh, she was having that dream again about running through the forest? In theory, yes. Um, In theory, anything that is essentially what I call explicitly represented at the brain at any given point in time, you should be able to decode. How does that information help you? Say that you could read my dreams in, in this way. What, what is, it, is it telling you something about the nature of dreams, what dreams mean? Is it a form of mind reading? Why would we want to do this? Well, Kamatani has his reasons for decoding dreams, and uh, he thinks they might be useful for interpreting the, the function of dreams, that if we knew more about what people were dreaming about, we could try to understand why people dream, because at this point, we still don't know. You know, philosophers and scientists have thought for hundreds of thousands of years about why people dream. And to this day, we still don't have a good idea of that. The current thinking in neuroscience is that dreaming has something to do with memory consolidation and learning. But that is probably an oversimplified answer. And it may be that dreams have several functions. It may be that different kinds of dreams or dreams occurring at different points in the sleep cycle have different functions. So we don't really know why we dream. And Kamatani's view is that if we could decode dreams, it would help us solve that problem. And does that mean that you can also say, by decoding dreams, you can say what they mean? Because that's what people want to know. What did my dream mean? I have this dream every night. I've been dreaming that I'm running through a forest or whatever. What does that mean? Because that's what people want to know. 
well, I don't think that this decoding approach will help that because all it's going to tell you is what you were dreaming about, right? It's not going to tell you what that dream means or why it occurs in your life okay. or why your brain generated it. And if you can accurately report what you were dreaming about, then really the decoder doesn't help at all because all it's going to do is tell you what you already know. Now, there's a movie, this evokes a movie for, for me at least, called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And in that movie, it's, it's a good film, uh, neuroscientists can zero in on specific memories in the brain, in this case, can erase those memories. Now, this was all science fiction, but what you've described to me here raises the question, could you potentially do something like that where you can zero in on a specific image and erase it? And this might help if you were having disturbing dreams or post-traumatic stress. Well, I, I used to say that this was a, a really great science fiction movie that had no chance of being true, but actually it's possible that you could do that one day. Um, so as you mentioned in the movie, people uh, dream, and then while they're dreaming, there is some sort of device that's used to essentially zap the memories of their current dreams, and then they forget them. Now, this kind of brings together two different lines of scientific research that are completely independent. The first is you need to build a dream decoder because, you know, you're going to have people that are asleep and you want to essentially build some sort of device that will give you a TV picture, a video of what they're dreaming at any given point in time. And, and based on current research, that's potentially possible someday when we have a better method of measuring brain activity. Then the second thing you need to do is you need to have some method of zapping an individual memory and erasing it. And people used to think that was impossible, but actually there's been a lot of work in rodent models, rats and, and mice really, that show that you probably can zap individual memories. And, and this takes advantage of the, well, I don't want to call it a fact, um, the theory that every time you recall a memory, Essentially, it's decoded from your brain, and then it has to get written back into the brain again. And so memories, every time they're recalled, are continuously overwriting old memories. So the idea is if you have your mouse recalling a memory, and then you apply some sort of electrical or chemical trigger that blocks the re-encoding of that memory, that then the memory will be lost. So you can imagine if you had a dream decoder and then could identify the location in the brain at which essentially memories were stored and then block those memories using this other kind of trick, that actually that might be possible. But obviously, this raises many questions. But one is, you had just said earlier that we don't know what dreams mean. So we don't know if, if going in and zapping a particular dream that's disturbing might create more harm than good. There may be a reason why we're having that dream. We're working it through. We don't know what the function is. And maybe getting rid of it could actually cause a problem. Oh, absolutely. I mean, doing anything to someone's brain could potentially cause a problem. So you don't want to just be going in and zapping memories willy-nilly right and left just for the heck of it. That would be a really bad thing. You had a look on your face that actually would have been translated into duh. <laughs> well, right? I think uh, a lot of uh, people think that neuroscientists are actually, you know, our goal is to try to go in and manipulate the brain or manipulate people. But actually, most of us are just trying to understand what the heck is going on. Jack Gallant, thank you so much. Thank you uh, for having me on. Jack Gallant is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of California in Berkeley. Thanks to our dreamy production duo that never sleeps on the job, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced right here at the SETI Institute. And thanks also to our listeners. You've been listening to Z's, please. And you can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And if you have insomnia, you might want to check out that website. We have a large archive right there. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because you find it just a little more relaxing, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. <laughs> For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Get ready to geek out. 
The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.